Bokatov, and welcome back to another in our ongoing series of Shirem and Dafyomi. We are now on the final podcast in the 15th parak of Masachet Yevamot, beginning on Daf Kuf Yod Zayin Amud Bet. Uh, and we are at the Mishnah near the top of the Amud, Eid Omer Meit Vinisait. Now, we are dealing throughout this parak with the circumstance of testimony of one person or another to the fact that a woman's husband has died and the consequences. Now, let's say one witness came and said that the husband died and she married based on that one witness and the Beitim. And then another witness came and said, no, he didn't die. What he exactly said is unclear, whether he says, I saw him after that date or I was there at the point and he didn't die. She does not have to leave the marriage that she's just entered into uh, after the uh, first witness came. Uh, but if one and the reason for that, sorry, the reason for that is because once we accept the one aid, then we consider him like two, and the second guy coming is now one against two. But let's say one witness says that he died, and then she marries, and then two two witnesses come and say no, he didn't die. Again, they must be substantiating that, as to say we saw him after that date, or we were at the same event and he didn't die. Even if she married. And this we talked about in an earlier parak. Even if she already married, she still has to leave that second marriage. Now, flip it. If two witnesses come and say he died, and then one witness comes and says he didn't die, even though she hadn't yet married, she can go ahead and marry. There's no concern here. That's fairly obvious. And the Mishnah, will, the Gemara will address it. So, in the first clause, when the one witness comes and says, mate, then we said, um, um, that um, she, that if she married and then someone else came along and said low mate she doesn't have to leave. Our understanding from that is it's only because she was first married. Halo nisit lotina say. Implication being that if she did not yet marry, she may not marry. In other words, one witness came and said she may marry uh, that he died. And before she marries anybody, another witness came and said he didn't die. We, the understanding is she can't marry. After all, Ula said the, made the point, point of the principle, anywhere that we accept one witness as valid, we regard it as two witnesses. And the second guy who comes is one witness refuting the testimony of two, and that should be nothing. So you should be able to marry. The answer is, you're right. If one witness comes and says she died, and the Beitin says she may marry, and another guy comes and says, before she married, comes and says she, he didn't die. She does not leave, not meaning she doesn't leave the husband, she doesn't leave her original permission. Once the Beitin said she can marry and accepted the one witness who came, now of course if one witness comes and another witness comes and they contradict each other, we're going to deal with that a little later in this podcast, that's a different story. But when one witness comes and says she, he died and the Beitin investigates enough and is satisfied and say you may marry, and then another witness comes and says, no, he didn't die. She may still marry. Aid Omer made. So then the second clause is, if one aide says she, that he died, and then an, and two come and say he didn't die, she has to leave her husband. So After all, these two witnesses come and say that he didn't die. That should certainly trump the one witness said he did. So we must be talking now about all of them being about the two who come, being psule edut, women, ketanim, whatever it might be. Uchrav nechemia. Tanya, Rav nechemia omer. Rav nechemia had the following principle. Kol makom shemina Torah edachad. Ula's principle. 
which is anywhere the Torah accepts one witness, we regard it as two. Nehemiah has a different principle. Whenever the Torah accepts one witness, and he and Ula does not agree with this, because Ula says you have proper edut. Rabbi Nehemiah says whenever the Torah says you accept one aid, you don't really have proper edut. And therefore, you just follow the majority of voices. If you have 15 people saying he died and 16 saying he didn't die, he didn't die. So therefore, um, two women testifying against one man is like two men, test- men testifying against one man. In other words, since this is a circumstance where, the, where we're accepting one witness, which means we're not really operating within the laws of Eidut, the corner of Nehemiah, therefore, if two women come and testify against uh, contradicting one man, it's like two men coming contradicting one man, and therefore, these two women who came and said he didn't die are believed, and she has to leave the husband. We may that may not be the case. We may have to say as follows: If the first guy was a man, a proper aid, I feel a man Even if you have a hundred women coming afterwards, that's still considered like one man, and therefore they cannot contradict him, and they can't refute him, and his testimony stands. So what's the case in our Mishnah? So here's what happened. The first witness was a woman. And now explain Rabbi Nechemi as follows. Everywhere, anywhere where the Torah accepted one aid, you follow a majority of voices, or a majority of people. This is very different. Two women facing off against one woman we don't consider it a double knockout. We consider that the two really do knock out the one. Just like But if you have one man testifying and two women come and, and challenge it, then we consider it not to be that the two knock out the one, as Rav Nechemia originally, as we thought Rav Nechemia meant, but rather that they are considered a sort of a 50-50 split, and we uh, and and it stands as it's, it stands. And by the way, in that case, she would not have to leave. Which means that, according to the second version, if the first witness to come was a man and said he died, and she married, and then two women came and said no, he didn't die, she would not have to leave. Good. The end of the Mishnah says mate. So if two people said he died and one person said he didn't die, she can get married. So my and that's a no-brainer. What's it teaching us? We're talking about when these two come, and these two people are psule edut, and it's supporting Rav Nechemia, who says that whenever we're operating in this system where we accept one aid, we don't care about who they are, we just care about the numbers. So, that's the same as the earlier clause, according to what we just said. The middle clause of the Mishnah was also explaining Rav Nechemia. No, you might have thought... You follow Rov Deo Lechumra, meaning when one person says he died and she got married, and then two says two come and say he didn't die, that she has to leave her husband. That's Lechumra. Aval Lekula Lo, but I might think that in a lenient side, when two Psule Edu come and say he died, that she can marry, even though one came and said he didn't die. The answer is Kamash Milan that Rav Nechemia applies his principle of Rov Deo, even when the result will be a leniency. Good. The next Mishnah. Um, it deals with a contradiction between, at the beginning, two wives of a man. Two wives went with their husband to uh, somewhere. They come back and they disagree about whether he died. It's very simply a case of Shavya Nafsha, which we'll deal with a lot when we get to the beginning of Masachik Tubot. 
basically her declaration about herself, and I'm really referring to the second wife, um, establishes who she is. So the one who testifies that he died, she can marry, and she can accept, she can take the tuba from the estate. And the one who says he didn't die, she can't marry. She doesn't take the tuba. But on the other hand, uh, and, and, and uh, we'll see an expansion of that later on in the Mishnah, now they have a disagreement, but it's a disagreement with the same result. They both agree he's dead, but one says he died, meaning he died of natural causes, and the other one says he was killed, hit by a bus, shot by an arrow, doesn't matter. So Rameir says, now we have a hachasha, uh, a, refute, a, refute, a refuting each of the other's words, and therefore we knock them both out, and they can't marry. say, look, the bottom line is, they both are testifying that he's dead. So therefore, Yinasu, they can both marry. We'll see what, uh, why Rameir was silent in the first part of the Mishnah uh, in the Gemara. So you have one witness saying that uh, two witnesses come. One witness says he died, and I mentioned this in the earlier Mishnah, and the other witness says he didn't die. Or You have two women, one, each one saying he did or didn't die. These are not the wives, it's just women. In that case, it's a double knockout. Unlike the case that we had in the, in the earlier Mishnah, where one witness comes and says he died, and the Beitin issues a, a, a permission for her to marry, and then a witness comes and says he didn't die, then we say we don't, uh, we don't move from that. But here, the two witnesses came at the same time, and before the Beitin was able to process, the first testimony, the second testimony came, and then it's a double knockout. Good. So now the Gemara goes back to the opening line, where one woman says mate, and the other woman says low mate. The woman who says low mate may not marry. So it's only because she said lomate. So if the woman is silent, she can't she may marry. We already saw in a previous Mishnah that one of the five women you can't testify who cannot testify on your behalf, and in this case you can they can you cannot testify for them, is a co wife. Uh, because of the concern that a woman's gonna come and say the husband died, and she's doing it because she hates this co wife so much that she's trying to mess her up, and therefore we don't believe her. One co-wife can't testify on behalf of the other. And therefore, if one woman says mate and the other one says nothing, she still shouldn't be able to marry. So why, why pick low mate? The answer is low mate itzri we need, we need to specifically teach the case where the woman speaks up and says low mate. We might think that really the guy died. And why did she say he didn't die? Which is a, self, a strange thing to say. To testify about a non-event, the answer is the kukul latzara he kamechavna tamon nafshi implishtim kamra. We quote a pasuk from Shimshon's last thoughts, as it were, that perhaps that Shimshon said, "I'll die with, and I'll take the plishtim with me." Uh, he pulled the house down. He died in the in the uh, in the cave in, but he killed three thousand plus plishtim, and that was his sentiment. So perhaps the same thing on a much smaller scale applies here. Maybe this wife is saying uh, low mate. Um, and um, and really, he died. But she's saying low mate because she says this way neither one of us can marry, and you know, and she won't be able to marry. Yeah, I'll suffer, but I'd rather have her suffer too than for both of us to be free. And says low mate, even though she knows he dies and there died, and therefore maybe we shouldn't believe her, and we should say no, you're also free to marry. We don't accept it at all. Kamash Balan, that we don't say that. Kamash Balan, that each woman's testimony takes her in that direction. 
Now, Achat Omeret Mate, Vachat Omeret Lo Mate. Right, Achat Omeret Mate, Vachat Omeret Neherag. The second clause was when one woman says he died and the other one says he was killed. And Rameer said, because they are contradicting each other, neither one can marry. So, Vlifor Gamer Beresha. So, why doesn't Rameer disagree in the Resha where one said he died and the other said he didn't die? So, I'm Rabbalazar Machlokashniya, Rabbi Elazar. So, we have a dispute between the two great sages of the end of the third century in Tveria. Uh, Rabbi Elazar is of the opinion that you're right, Rameir does disagree on the first part of the Mishnah. And the first part of the Mishnah is presented from the perspective of Yudhu Rabbi Shimon that say that when you have this con- such a contradiction, um, that, we, that you, we accept each one, but we don't look at that as a contradiction. Rabbi Yochanan disagrees and says, you know what? Rameir may agree on the ratio. Why? When somebody says he didn't die, that's not a refutation of an edut. It's one thing to say he died this way, the other says he died that way. It's one event, you're testifying about it, you're disagreeing, it may knock each other out so that we have no testimony at all. But when one person says he died, the other person says he didn't die, what they're really saying is, I, I can't testify to it, because I can't testify to a non-event, but I'm maintaining that he's still alive, and therefore we're being machmer on you as if he's still alive, you can't marry, you can't take the tubat. Good, so perhaps Rav Meir would agree there that if one woman says mate and the other says low mate, the one who says low mate doesn't affect the other person's uh, edut, but for herself she can't marry. Now, Tanan, Edomer mate, Edomer low mate, Yishomer mate, Yishomer low mate, the safe of our Mishnah, Hare Zulo Tinase, says that she can't marry. So, Bishnah Melo Rabbalazar, Stamakur Meir. So, according to Rabbalazar, who said that Rav Meir really would have disagreed in the Rasha, and he did, but he wasn't represented, he can explain the safe as Rav Meir. Because otherwise, it should be that if one witness says she, he died and the other one says he didn't die, then according to Rabbi Yudhur and Bishimon, we should say, we have one witness testifying he died, and the other one is just saying nothing, and therefore she should be able to marry. El Rabbi Yochanan, Kashu Rabbi Yochanan, who says that Rabbi Meir would have, would have agreed with the Rasha, um, and Lomate is not testimony at all, it should be that she'd be, she should be able to marry. So, in other words, the seifa that says she cannot marry when one says um, uh, mate and the other says low mate, Rabbi Lazar could say, yes, that's Rabbi Meir, who says such a thing really is a double knockout. But according to Rabbi Yochanan, who says that Rabbi Meir would agree in a case where all you're testifying to is a non-event, then the reason in the ratio that the second woman cannot marry is not because there's a lack of testimony, but because she has declared herself to be still a married woman. So, and you're right, Kasha, we seem to support Rabbalah's read here that Rameir would not have agreed with the ratio, and that the ratio represents the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. But in the next Mishnah, Alright, so this case is a woman and her husband go off to Mindyatayam and she comes back alone. Uvavi Amram made Pali, she comes back and says her husband died. She can come back, she can marry somebody else, take a ketubah. Her co-wife, however, remember a woman cannot testify on behalf of her co-wife, her tsara is still asura until we get better testimony that the husband's dead. Now, the tsara is still ki'ilu married and therefore, let's say this husband who we think might be dead, was a Kohen, and she's not a Kohen. She could still eat Truma. She's 100% still married. And by the way, we rule like Rabbi Tarfon here, as we'll see. Rabbi Kiva says, you're not going to, by having, by saying she has to stay considered married and she can't take her to Bob, 
she can't marry anybody else, that's not going to ensure that she's not violating anything. The only way to do it is to be stringent on both sides. Perhaps the husband's really not a lot, not dead, and therefore she can't marry, but perhaps the husband is dead, and therefore she can't eat truma. That is Rabbi Akiva. And now we have a parallel case. Amram made pa'aliva chagach made chami. A woman comes back and says, my husband died, and then my father-in-law died. She can come and collect her ktuba. Her husband died. But her mother-in-law, remember, a woman cannot testify for her mother-in-law either. So her mother-in-law, who right now should be muteret, if really her own husband died, nonetheless is still asura. Says that the mother-in-law, if her husband, if the father-in-law was a kohen, uh, the mother-in-law could still eat truma. That she's that married. Rabbi Kiva says the same thing. This does not solve her her halachic conundrum. She has to not be able to marry, but also not be able to eat truma. Good. So now Utsricha, the Gemara, very brief piece here. Just to the end of the Amud, Utsricha, we need both of these disputes between Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Tarfon about Truma, both in the context of the woman testifying only about her own husband and affecting her co-wife, and the second where the woman testifies about her husband and her father-in-law affecting her mother-in-law. If we only had the first case, here I would think that Rabbi Tarfon absolutely does not apply her testimony to the Tzara, because after all, the, cons- the reason for thinking that, she might, that the woman may be lying about this is because she really loathes her co-wife because they're sharing the same bed, etc. When it comes to her mother-in-law, that's just regular kind of not getting along, but it's not something that's as personal as a co-wife. Perhaps Rabbi Tarfan would agree with Rabbi Akiva that there's good reason to believe that the guy really is dead. And if the guy's really dead, she can't eat truma. And if we only have the second case, perhaps only there Rabbi Akiva said she can't eat truma because there's reason to think the guy really is dead. But just flipping it, but in the ratio, we would think that really we're absolutely not believing this woman at all, and therefore that Sarah uh, um, is considered 100% still married and may continue to eat truma. That's why we need both. As I mentioned, the halacha is like a ritafon, she may eat truma. Now what that means effectively is that we really, at the soul of it, are not believing this woman um, and, and knowing that she is putting herself at risk by remarrying, taking the ketubah and everything else, but especially remarrying because in case she's not telling the truth and the husband shows up or witnesses come and testify that he's still there, that he's still alive, then she's going to lose everything, and the tsara will be fine. On the other hand, if she really is telling the truth, then we'll have to do more investigation until we know that he really is dead, and then the tsara, the co-wife, is able to marry. Good. Uh, we have a brighter that supports, and we have a Mishnah later that supports, the idea If a woman goes off with her husband, without any children, which means the chazaka right now is that she is kukaliyatliyibum. And she comes back alone and says, by the way, when we were there, I had a son. And then she says, and my son died, and then afterwards my husband died. Which means, by the way, she does need to get Yibum, because the son died first. 
she believes. Why is she believed? Because she's simply supporting the status that she had beforehand as Kukali Yibum. But if she testifies that her husband died first and then her son, which would mean that she's now Muterat Lashuk, she doesn't need Chalitza, but just in case she's telling the truth, she has, sorry, in, uh, in, just in case, uh, just to cover all bases, we have her get Chalitza because we don't believe her. And now the, the, the implication is we're concerned that perhaps she's telling the truth and perhaps she's not telling the truth. But when it comes to a co-wife, we're not chosh at all. In other words, remember, when a woman testifies on her own behalf, we generally accept it. So in this circumstance, because it goes against the chazaka, we don't accept it, but just in case, we believe it part way. The implication is that if those five women for whom you cannot testify, we don't believe it at all. And therefore, when this woman comes and says, our husband died, the co-wife is still 100% married and can still eat truma, thus supporting the position of a retarfone, as Abaya pointed out. Shema mina. Okay, the next Mishnah, we're now on the last Amud of this parak. The next Mishnah, Kidesh Achat Mechamesh Nashim. Continue with Rabbi Kibbutz Ritarfon, dealing with circumstances where we are in doubt as how to deal with things. Do we uh, take either the most reasonable or consistent approach, or do we take the most uh, umbre- the largest tent approach, which will cover the greatest um, likelihood that we will get it right? A man gives Kiddushin. For right now, we'll assume the Kiddushin are Kiddushin Kesef. We will see that that may not be the case. A man knows he was Makadish, a woman, among five women. But he forgot which one it was. There's five, not sisters, they're not sisters to each other. Five different women out there. He knows that one of them he gave Kiddushin to and doesn't remember which one. Everyone claims she's the one. You know, there's no way to clarify it that way. So, and, so what does he do? He gives each one a get. He gives them the tuba, and he walks away and lets them divide it up. Which means each one of them is going to get a fifth of the tuba. Again, as using the same wording that he used before about Truma, says this will not save us from violating the law. He has to give each one a get and a full tuba. His mistake, he should have been more careful, and now he has to pay five tubas instead of one. Let's say he stole from somebody. He knows of one of these five people he stole. He knows what the items are worth. He doesn't remember who it was. Each one claims it's them. says, put the thing in the middle. Let them figure it out. And you know what he's going to say. You have to pay each one of them uh, for the theft, which means you end up paying five times. Now, the Gemara immediately comments on the fact that the Mishnah picked the case of Kiddushin, Kidesh, one of five, and not Nisuin, or Bila, and that the second clause picked up on Gazal, but not Lakach, meaning if you stole from one of five, but not if you bought it from one of five, and the question is now who you owe the money to. Kidesh Tani, Baal Tani, so it said Kidesh, Gazal Tani, Lakach Loktani. Now, Manim Anitin, who is the author of our Mishnah? We'll see why this is problematic. Because we will see that there are two different reads on our Mishnah, and neither one fits our version of the Mishnah. Shimon Alazar says that Rabbi Kiva and Ritarfun did not disagree about a case of Kiddushin, one of five, and you don't know which one it is. They agree in such a case. 
you put the ketubah in the middle and divide it up because it's a pure financial debt. Safek, you put it in. Aman nechleku al shebaal. We're talking only about a case where he already had bia, and therefore whoever does he have bia with deserves a full ketubah. Should we tarfon omer miniach ketubah benen we stalek we kivomer aji shleim echol achad vachad. Tarfon says you put it in the middle. Kiva says you have to pay each one of them because one of them deserves a full ketubah. So therefore, according to Shimon Al-Azhar, that, that does not fit our Mishnah, because our Mishnah used Kiddush, and he says Kiddush is not the issue, Baal is the issue, which means he had a different version of our Mishnah, but not ours. On the other hand, In the case where he bought from one person out of five, he doesn't know which one, they agree that you put the money that he owes in the middle, and leaves, and they divide it up. The only machlok at the end is when he actually stole from one of five people. Betarfon said, you put the gzela there and walk away. And Rabbi Kiva said that you have to pay each one of them, which is like our Mishnah. Now, since Rabbi Shimon Elazar says in the two cases of Kidesh as opposed to Baal and Lakach as opposed to Gazal, they didn't disagree. So clearly his, his opposite number feels that that's where the Machloket was. Kidesh for Lakach. Our problem is that we have Kidesh and Gazal, which is one of each. If our Mishnah really follows the version of the Tanakhama of that Brita, then it should say Kidesh, but it should also say Lakach. If it's Rabbi Shimon Elazar, then it should read Baal, but it should also have, it should have Gzela, like we have, but it should also have Be'il in the beginning, not, not Kidesh. The answer is, Lalem Shimon Elazar, Kidesh, Kidesh for Be'ah. Kidesh here doesn't mean Kidesh Kasef, and that's why I said, we're going to assume it's Kasef, but it won't be. And therefore, kids, Kiddush Pabia, therefore he owes a folk tuba, according to Rabbi he owes a folk tuba to each one of them. Tana, Kiddush, to Deachaka, Chod Rabbi And now we understand. The Mishnah specifically picked the case of Kiddush to show you how far Rabbi Kiva is going to go. Deachagav, the Isur Rabbanan Avad. All he did was violate an Isur Rabbanan here. Uh, nonetheless, Kanis, he, uh, he is, um, uh, the Yisud Rabbanon is Kiddush is something that uh, the rabbis frowned upon, and they gave Makat Mardut for that. And nonetheless, he is Kutni Knas and he has to pay each one of them. Clearly, it's a fine to pay five times as much as you owe. And Tana Gazalu Ritarfon, and they picked the case of Gzela as opposed to Mekach to show you how far Ritarfon will go. Here he violated an Yisud of Gzela Lokonis. He still isn't willing to fine him and say you have to pay five times as much. You put what you owe in the middle and let the claimants divide it up. Good. The last couple of Mishnayot, really the last three Mishnayot that are grouped together, are as follows. So now you have a woman, a man, and a child, which means her chazaka now is muteret lashuk, not because she has a child. They have a child. They go on a trip. She comes back alone. She comes back and says, they died, and here's the order. The husband died, which means I'm not Zkukali Avam, and then the son died, which is Nebuch. Nehmenet, she's believed, and she could marry out. Why? Because that was her Chazaka when she left. When she left, she was Muterat Lashuk. But if she says, Mate Beniva, Chakach Mate Palivir, if she comes back and says, My son died, and then my husband died, Ain't a Nehmenet. Why? Because she's turning her, her, her Chazaka upside down. Because here she's saying that 
uh, the son died, which means I am now Zkukali Avam, and then the husband, uh, the husband died, so now I really am Zkukali Avam, and now she's going to have relations with uh, her husband's brother. But just in case, we ever do chalitza. Now we've got another one. A woman went with her husband, comes back alone, and says, In Medinatayam we had a son. And by the way, that son died, and then my husband died, which means when they left, it was a childless couple, which means she's, her chazaka is kukaliyavam. She came back and said, I had a son, but the son died, and then the husband died. Because that's totally supporting what she, her status was before. But if she comes back and says, we had a son, and then my husband died, and then my son died, which means that she's going against her chazaka and saying she's a muter lashuk, and on a minute. And, and nonetheless, we, we enforce chalitza, but we don't, um, but we don't, we, we're, we're choshesh that she may be telling the truth, and therefore, um, uh, and, uh, but we, based on her chazaka, she does chalitza, but based on her word, she can't do yibum. Now we got another case. A woman went off with her husband, and uh, she says, and she traveled, let's say, with her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law was pregnant, and the Avam was born, a brother to her husband was born. So she says, if she says, my husband died first, and then that brother died, that would mean that, or or the brother died, and then the husband died. Because in either case, she's supporting Chazaka of Muterat Lashuk, because remember, when she left, she had no brothers-in-law, which means that if her husband died, she would muter lashuk. Now that she says that her brother had a her husband had a brother uh, born, it doesn't matter what order it happened in. Right now, there's no husband, no brother. She's muter lashuk. Let's say there already is a brother-in-law, and she, her husband, and her brother-in-law go off to Mdinatayam, and that's the only brother, of course. If she comes and testifies that her husband and brother died, and it doesn't matter what order, a non she's not believed. Because when she left, she was Bechezkat's Kukali Now she's taking herself out of the Chazakah, she's saying all of the candidates are gone. These are the rule. A woman is not believed to say, my brother-in-law died, so that she can marry out, if that'll be the result. She's not believed to testify that her sister died, so she can now marry that husband. And a man is not believed to say, my brother died, so that he can be the wife. And he also cannot testify that his wife died, if the result will be that he marries her sister. Good, so now, One prefatory note. There is a rule that's explicated in Masachat Gitna in the first parak. Which is zochin adam shelo befanav and chavin lo adam elo befanav, that you can act on behalf of someone which when is totally to his to his benefit, even without him explicitly appointing you as an agent, and you cannot act when they're even partially to his detriment, uh, unless he directly appoints you, and therefore you cannot pick up a get on behalf of a woman unless you made you you, you the shaliach because that's a detriment to her. But what happens when it's b'makom yava? In other words, uh, when uh, the husband wants to give a get, the husband's dying, they have no children, and his brother's a schnook, and therefore he's trying to give a get to the, to the wife. Can a guy standing by his bedside accept the get on her behalf, even though she's not there, to make sure that she doesn't have to fall to this yavam? 
Do we say that because she doesn't like this guy, it's an absolute, unquestionable schut for her to get divorced, and therefore he can act on her behalf. On occasion, a woman will like her brother-in-law, and therefore it would be a chov for her to get to get, because that way she's disqualified from the brother-in-law. You can't act on someone's, uh, someone's detriment without his, uh, without his explicit uh, request. So Amar lay, so Rav Nachman answered Rav, and he said, Tanina, in our Mishnah, he said when the woman came back and said that, uh, that, that, um, that the husband um, died, and then the son died, sorry, the son died, and then the husband died, she's not believed, uh, to be muter liyavam, but we are what uh, we're choshesh and we have a do chalitza, right? Why are we choshesh nidvareha? Because it may be that she really does like the avam and she's lying in order to be bealavivum with him, and on the other hand, it may be that she doesn't. We go choshesh in both direction, so that means that you never have a surefire bet to say that uh, that it's a good thing or a bad thing, and therefore, in the case of a, of zochin. That we have in our our question that Rav asked Rav Nachman, he would say you can never know 100% that it's a benefit for her or a detriment for her to get the get, and therefore machmer. I'm a Ravina the Rava. So now Rav himself was asked by Ravina. What if the husband and wife are fighting, and then the, and then the husband says, Ah, the hell with you. Here's a get, and his friend's standing by, and the friend picks it up on her behalf. Is that valid? Because they're fighting. So perhaps it may be a schut for her. Maybe it's better for her to still to be married, even though it's not the best situation. Famous statement of Rishlakish. That the women say it's better to be with the two bodies together than to be alone. Meaning I'd rather have a, uh, some sort of relationship, even though it's not ideal, rather than to be alone. This, of course, was a huge, huge dispute in the 60s as to whether this chazaka... Uh, applies in our day between uh, Rabbi Rachman and the Rav. Very famous story about that. Abaya, but what, how what the nature of these chazakot are. So Abaye and the, the Hamoraim give several examples of this. If her husband is really really short, they still give her fancy pillows to sit on because she's a married woman. Papa said that if her husband. Um, is uh, somebody who combs out wool, something very lowly kind of uh, kind of uh, vocation. They still sit her at the fancy part of the gate. Rashi Amar Dukulse Gavra. If it's, uh, let's say, your husband uh, even has something wrong in his family and they say that there's a or some, some sort of Shemetz in the family, she's still... Um, always has something to eat. In other words, even though the marriage is not greatest, the husband's not the greatest, whatever, still, it's something she prefers because she gets this covenant, because security, whatever it may be. But the final remark on this is that uh, what women in such a case do is they find some other way to, uh, to they, they have infidelity, but then if they ever become pregnant, they say it's from the husband. So the, the last statement in this parak doesn't seem to be really confirming that this is an ideal situation, but just saying a reality that a woman would rather stay married, even if it means being married to uh, somebody who's uh, less than classy, and uh, rather than to be alone. The question is, of course, 
how you deal with a chazaka like that today, uh, whether you would say that the women are more, more independent and able to make better choices on their own, or you say that that's not the case, or even if it is the case, not relevant, and that we will leave for the post scheme, not for the teachers of Dafyomi. Everyone should have a wonderful day, and we'll touch over the next podcast. We'll begin the final paragraph of Masachet Yivamot.